Hello, this is Brian from Living in the End Times with Amos and X. As always, thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please be sure to follow us on social media. Give us a favorable rating on the podcast app of your choice, say CastBox or Podcast Republic. And most importantly, support us through Patreon at patreon.com slash endtimespodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash endtimespodcast, one word. And thank you in advance. and TV on the radio covering Peru's final solution as we kick it off tonight. It's a good one. To um, discuss the film at hand a little long in the tooth, but, you know, the hype dying off never stopped us before. Uh, Oppenheimer. So we'll deal with Barbie at a later date, probably. Um, But... 2023 does appear to be the year of communist film, which is not what I would have thought was going to happen with uh, How to Blow Up a Pipe Bomb, as previously discussed, Oppenheimer. Mm -hmm. Uh, They cloned Tyrone, which is more radical in some ways than any of the other movies that I'm mentioning. And then probably Barbie. Uh, I saw something about how women are like getting out of toxic relationships after they see the movie. Cause it hmm. like um, pills them. Like I taught one of my friends is uh, she's like 26 and she said she was crying. And then we talked about, and which was surprising for her, not for me. I cried the movies all the time, but uh, she, I was like, we were, I don't know. We were talking about women's fashion or something. And I was like, I don't understand the, like there's no pockets in women's clothing. Like mm-hmm. I understand the initial repressive, side of it but women's are responsible for like 75 percent of all clothing sales so i just thought like from a capitalist perspective if women want it the market would respond right um and then i was describing how like you know what i was talking about this like not i'm not surprised about the repression i'm surprised about the lack of response and uh articulating some other thoughts i had not having seen the film 
And she was like, you're like describing the plot of Barbie. And I was like, that's interesting because Greta Gerwig, who wrote and directed it, um, she's talked about having professors in college who are like Lacanians. And there's mm-hmm. a there's a movie that she's involved with where, um, God, who is it? It's like Ethan Hawke plays this like Zizekian professor. Like it's a, it's kind of just like a romantic comedy dramedy thing. Um, so, uh, but I mean, independent of all that, Greta cracked the fucking code. I mean, a mm. billion dollars off of a movie about toys that's pissing off everybody. Even Bill Maher was like, this is preachy bullshit. It's like, if you're pissing off Bill Maher, you're your friend of mine. Um, <laughs> So, like, l- likely to be, to fit in this pantheon of communist film in 2023, but, um, the, I don't know how, oh yeah, we're, well, just maybe as an aperitif, um, since we've both seen Asteroid City, like, mm-hmm. Zizek's made this, um, observation that often, like, two movies will come out the same year, and they're sort of, like, the obverse of each other, like, one's, one's, like, progressive or communist mm-hmm. and one isn't so like when for example when when the the big serious costume drama lincoln came out the i think I, that was a spielberg movie like that mm-hmm. was the sort of stale reactionary one but abraham lincoln vampire hunt vampire slayer was like <laughs> the radical one and it really is it's like sure. that that one's about class war and it's really good actually even though obviously it sounds like this schlocky bullshit which maybe sure. Maybe it, maybe the novel was I don't know, but um, and did, on that note, didn't uh, Seven Years a Slave come out same time as Django? Yeah, Twelve Years a Slave. Or that's what out, it is. Yeah, same year as Django. Um, but more, which yeah, and Django is obviously the the more glorious one. Um, but also, so paradoxically, um, along those lines. There, uh, the year Birth of a Nation came out, the new one about Nat Turner, mm. which I could tell was going to be shitty. Like, um, and I didn't watch it, so I can't, you know, go very far. But the same year, the Matthew McConaughey film Free State of Jones came out, and that is one of the most radical things I've ever seen. So that was about this basically breakaway state during the civil war in the swamps of Alabama with like freed slaves and poor whites. And he was trying to like, he was trying to unify people like under this flag of like actual liberation. And in the process, he was like negotiating with, um, uh, who was the Northern general, whatever he was trying to get them to send a division of troops to Mm -hmm. him. Um, but they wouldn't do it, I think, because probably it was there was too much of a risk that they wouldn't be uncontrollable after the war. Mm. Um, and when I say that movie was radical, I mean, like, I can't even say the words, but like McConaughey gives this sort of a sermon to these reactionary whites who are, you know, they were there, but they were sort of they didn't some of them didn't want to, like, fight with blacks. And he was just calling he was calling the whites. He He's like, we're all N words. And it's like, holy fuck. <laughs> like, try to imagine trying to make that movie now. Mm. I mean, impossible. So, and what he meant is like in a universal sense, like in the, 
you know, Haitian revolution sort of way. Like we're all the proles. Like, so shut the fuck up. He was like telling them to like, you're not better than these people. You're probably Mm -hmm. worse. Um, And so um, let me think there's, there's other examples. Like this year, the, the big one, um, besides what we're about to talk about is the sound of freedom, which is uh, this Jim Cavazial like reactionary nightmare uh, that I went to with friend of the pod, Scott, because I thought it was going to be this crazy Q stuff. Cause that Jim Cavazial guy is like a legitimately mentally ill person. Um, like just hearing him talk, you can tell, but the, th- the movie sucked so bad because it wasn't Q crazy. Mm. It was a fucking ICE agent, a good guy ICE agent who went to Central America and like um, literally to quote fight child trafficking started a child trafficking ring to supposedly mm. entrap the enemies and then there's like it's just terribly boring. The problem boring. with the movie is it sucks. And yeah. also but the, the great... the <laughs> the sort of like paramount ideological fantasy in that film is the idea that ice agents want to stop human trafficking when they're the ones who literally are doing it. And just to be totally clear, ice is a subdivision of DHS and border patrol. Ice is literally a Gestapo hit squad that goes and kidnaps people out of their home, immigrants out of their homes and puts them in cages where they get sexually assaulted by border patrol agents and prison guards and then get trafficked i'm sure after that so um it's just delulu as the as the kids say <laughs> but as the kids with mustaches say yeah but um th- at the same moment uh, another movie came out that was like had lower production value to some degree uh called god is a bullet that's the that's the left-wing answer to sound of freedom it's about this Mm. girl who like got trafficked into a satanic cult and um her dad is a cop who or sorry her this cop gets involved with her because his daughter gets kidnapped and so they go like fucking and this i guess is based on a true story like um, they go to like rescue her and end up in all these like gunfights. It's fucking awesome. Like it's just a great movie, but like it's also like pretty left wing. It's got um Mika or Mikia Monroe, who is um I've written about in a potential book project. Like she's one of these like one of these figures of like one of these revolutionary subjects, like in like every movie she's in. Um so Anyway, so like this, this repeatedly happens, seemingly by chance, but who knows? Um, mm-hmm. And so, Asteroid City is sort of like the reactionary liberal version of Oppenheimer, where I mean, I don't even know what I don't think the movie has a premise really. It's just mm-hmm. like, um, as Scott pointed out, like at first he thought maybe it was Schwartzman's character was playing like Scorsese in the seventies, but he's like, no, it's it's um, Coppola. And then I was like, that crystallized so much about Wes Anderson's entire body of work because Roman Coppola always co-writes the movies. And I, I, ne- I just thought of that as like a, I never th- like gave it much thought, but if you think about it, like through this lens of like basically all of Wes Anderson's movies or a, it over half are about what it's like to be, um, Francis Ford Coppola's kids 
like Mm -hmm. the life aquatic you have this narcissistic like lunatic uh, going on adventures and uh, royal tenenbaums kids hate them royal tenenbaums is just like not they're not even hiding it there right um and then uh was the other big one um well this one for sure and there was an interesting uh my favorite part of the of asteroid city was when the girls are like doing their like little witchcraft routine Mm -hmm. uh, for the burial that was pretty funny and terrifying but it also was like oh that's what sofia coppola was like when she was little (laughs) but yeah tenenbaums is is 100 percent because um uh gwyneth paltrow's character is obviously just sofia coppola um like very one-to-one and i don't know enough about the other siblings or whatever but hilariously when i when we went to that movie scott was kind of like he's like he's kind of bitching me for being late a little bit and i was like look you're just gonna miss a couple mustaches and a bad joke or two and literally (laughs) walk in and that's like how the movie opens like ed norton in a bad mustache with uh i don't remember who it opened with but yeah i I, like the movie is way funnier than i was expecting my expectations Mm -hmm. were low like and i certainly love certain wes anderson movies we've discussed like grand budapest hotel that's as clearly his masterpiece right even like moonrise kingdom's great um and then the older stuff i love life aquatic and the the one in the darjeeling limited really fucked with me like Mm -hmm. emotionally um so it's not i'm not a hater but like i i do i'm deeply uh, like i saw like 10 minutes of a truffaut movie and i was like oh god he just literally stole everything like everything about his aesthetic is just you know pilfered from Truffaut. Um, again, it doesn't make the movies bad, but I, I felt like this one was especially weak with all the like throwback stuff to the black and white theater mm-hmm. shit. Like that to me, that was like a very watered down version of you know whatever they were trying to like call back to, like Eugene O'Neill or something. Like again, mm-hmm. covering up the fact that all those fucking people were communists. Literally, all of those mm-hmm. like theater people and artists and Hollywood people in the '30s, especially, were communists, and that's why. Um, with Astro and and you know, why am I saying it's like the the sort of reactionary double of Oppenheimer because it takes place like adjacent to the Trinity test mm-hmm. site or like there that's kind of the the hint or whatever and then an alien comes and like no one cares that was interesting given our current moment because that's what's happening we're getting mm-hmm. like we're getting official disclosure that like there's non non-human being entities and, and non-human tech that the government has but it's no one cares and i think the reason people don't care number one is they they're starving um but the other reason is they simply the i think this is a scam this round of disclosures is like bullshit and the reason my why do i say that because it's fucking boring because like it's not scary or (laughs) exciting um and so like before i get to oppenheimer i'll just what do what do you if you have anything to add about asteroid city oh yeah not a whole lot nothing you didn't say other than um yeah it, it was it was interesting it was funny and the, the you're right the girls are the best part um it i don't know i think a lot of the to your point what a lot of the more interesting content political content was just kind of buried uh, buried under wes anderson's sort of uh colors as it were his uh, tapestry yeah. and uh, the the cute the cuteness of it all right um mm. so which is fine and maybe that's one way to get a certain audience 
exposed to that sort of content but again it's just too far buried if it's there at all the the leftism and the communist you know playwrights and so on to really to have much of an impact so it was okay but just um yeah didn't do it for me right so yeah so moving on to oppenheimer like <clears throat> my overall so we should preface this a little bit like paul schrader said this is the greatest <laughs> film of the 21st century um mm -hmm. Which is that was sort of like ringing in my ears the whole time, just you know, especially coming from him. Like, obviously, this is a Paul Schrader podcast, so like mm -hmm. that was really for him to say that. I mean, beyond high praise, like, he's, is, yeah, he's a if anyone is a cinephile, it's him, Big um, deal. yeah, <clears throat> and like, but like, what, what was so impressive to me and shocking, and I don't think it's what people signed up for is. Uh, Chris Nolan made a huge, you know, whatever, $100 million movie about these communist Jews who saved the world. Um, right. And, like, I I certainly knew Oppenheimer was a communist. I didn't realize, like, number one, that the milieu was so thick with communism mm -hmm. in the whole country. I, I mean, I... I knew that in a way, but like the way the left approaches that generally is like they talk about how big the Communist Party was. You know, it's like a million people. So then, what do you think? You think, oh, it's like workers or whatever. Yeah, but it's ever it was everyone. Like it was a you know a legitimate like it scared the shit out of the establishment mm -hmm. for sure. But like more importantly, like like I saw a post about. They claim I, I didn't agree with this read of Oppenheimer of the film, but like they were talking about how like it was a very naive post in some ways because they were like the movie makes it look like Oppenheimer denounced communism after the war and like walked everything back. And it's like, what fucking movie were you watching? Like he was getting interrogated by like these inquisitors and so he was lying <laughs> like of course he was lying mm -hmm. i mean that was just the most bizarre take uh ever but the the good content in it was just like he was that oppenheimer was um actively he was more actively uh involved with like organizing certain like committees within the communist party than was than was on paper but their claim was like, oh, they didn't put this in the movie. It's like they put in the movie that he couldn't really talk about what he was doing. And he was lying to the military mm -hmm. in order to, like, throw them off the scent. That's someone who is playing a political game. Like, also, they seem to, like, I don't know. It was just a very bizarre read because, it, like, I think the other thing was just, like, do you need them to say the words out loud and then it's true like does does oppenheimer need to does uh killian murphy need to walk out and be like i'm a communist and i did all these things like right it's only under those conditions that we can understand something has transpired like it's just very infantile which you know shout out to adam kotzko's um uh article about in the atlantic about how like basically evangelical level moralism of like good things are good and bad things are bad and you shouldn't say or suggest you shouldn't put anything on screen you don't agree with morally otherwise you're like basically sinning and he says like the left has sort of 
become that uh, in terms of cultural criticism, which is obviously the case. Yeah, um, I think the baffler leftist, if there was one, had a you know a critique that uh, Oppenheimer's neo it's a neoliberal film, and or because oh at least we get to watch him have have sex, and it's a, then it's great, and then they are just dismissing it sort of on those grounds, which struck me as just to your point childish so right i to that point like about the sex i think that that was actually one of the more jarring in, in a good way like presentations of sex on film mm -hmm. that i've seen in a long time and it wasn't even that it wasn't that extended or anything i mean some mm -hmm. part of it is florence Pugh is just so fucking hot and like I don't just mean her looks, but like her whole, like she just is very powerful as a, mm -hmm. as an actress. Um, there was a meme that was like, or a tweet that was like, yeah, me and my dad just left Oppenheimer. As soon as uh, my boomer dad, me and my boomer dad just left Oppenheimer. As soon as uh, Florence Pugh was topless, he like super loud was like, uh Oh, <laughs> in the theater, uh, which is awesome. But like, <laughs> I think I also think which is very telling that that was the first sex scene like actual sex scene in a Nolan film mm -hmm. um, the only other one that I can think of is there was sort of a hint at sex in uh, Dark Knight Rises um, but that or well I mean the Batman movies have hints of eroticism yeah. but like right. they don't show anything and that to me i don't know it's almost like nolan somehow is getting less reactionary over time which is mm. kind of impressive or very impressive um but like the i think another so just staging the i i think it is like at a formal level incredibly radical in this country given our former cold war history and the current cold war that's going on now that they're trying to restart thankfully it's not going very well at the level of like propaganda but nonetheless to have like hot actresses play communists and they're mm -hmm. not morons or what you know they're not cartoonish mm -hmm. Right. And having all these like high level scientists played by all these again a list actors um unapologetically being Jewish communists who are you know I was saying off mic like one of the really nice things that this clarified for me because I and I'd never really thought of this anti-semitic angle but like I was like it's such it would be such easy target practice for the right to be like oh look these sinister Jews uh built the bomb so they're responsible for like our coming annihilation but and then i was like so why haven't they done it and the reason is because then they would have to admit that the jews were the <laughs> smartest people in the world and the only ones who could build this shit right. um and they can't do that you know you can't you can't give up that much ground so like they that i mean even from even for nolan to be that you know not anti-semitic like in the mm -hmm. other way anti-anti-semitic in this really um you know triumphant way that was shocking to me um and i was you know glad to see it i think like and the other thing about like just the communist the idea of communism being a part of american culture to the point where like the fbi is mm -hmm. recording uh you know license plates at gatherings and parties and stuff 
and a point you had made off air a couple years ago about how like the left needs a sense of romance like Mm -hmm. both in a you know in terms of eros but obviously in the general sense and this kind of this staged that effectively Mm -hmm. um and it you know i don't know enough about the the historical details of like what went on in the era but that's not really what we're talking about but i will say like it was nice that that staged suicide of Florence Pugh was at least suggested to have been staged rather than just very obviously um, uh, that she's crazy or something. Mm -hmm. And like, and the fact that they were, I mean, they were trying to organize the Oppenheimer was trying to organize the radiation lab at Caltech. I mean, can you imagine something like that today? That would just, they wouldn't even, they'd be expelled. Not um, even among, yeah, like English departments. Right. right. The people who read Marx uh, right. in class, yeah, they can't even get their shit together. Um, there's just no whatever. The conditions of hope just aren't there. Uh, and so, yeah, like that, just for me, like that on its face is like the most important thing that happened is that I'm sitting in a theater full of people, full 20 or 20 to 25 year olds mm-hmm. watching this movie that's like uh about communist jews saving the world um that's incredible like uh, i'll take it um mm-hmm. the and you know just as a movie obviously like to be able to dramatize like a bunch of nerds doing science is challenging i mean it is um <laughs> right but i think like there's there's obviously two scary truly scary terrifying moments one was obviously when they're like setting up to test the do the trinity test yeah um and then it works and then but prior to that and this is this is chilling just uh this is sort of a the more religious aspect of the film or theological is when they go to uh consult with fermi in chicago and they people don't unless they're like nuclear nerds they're not going to know this but when they go to that football stadium and then under mm-hmm. underground is that chicago pile that's the first that is the first nuclear reactor in the history of the world and so i also just thought it was funny like there's some there's some anti football thing in nolan's heart where like in in the dark night rises bane like <laughs> right. blows up the football field not the stadium just the field and then to, you know overthrows the government and then in this one like you have this thing that's like this world shattering uh you know world changing invention terrifying with all this like sort of theological important ontological horror and it's mm-hmm. under a football field so he made sure to like be like the football is the enemy i don't know what that's about but it's kind of funny um and uh because i would assume it's just american football he doesn't like mm-hmm. um but chelsea <laughs> what's that <laughs> manchester united man all the yeah. way <clears throat> so like and then i mean as far as the the rest of the content like the only the most interesting thing about the robert de niro arc was just like was something i hadn't seen on film before which normally when they stage cold war stuff it's always just like very like reactionaries being reactionary but with uh robert downey jr it was like i might have said de niro sorry um with downey it was like you actually saw the arc of like somebody who 
maybe was just patriotic and even kind of would let the communist stuff slide, but then for personal, you know, hubristic reasons, uh, because Oppenheimer fucked him over or whatever, like he became this psychotic cold warrior. And then that became the reason to do everything. Mm -hmm. And so you see this paranoia actually growing over time, which there's no sense of that in the way that the left or anyone really talks about the cold war. People talk about it in the terms that the cold war was staged in. So like, there's still this fundamental, adherence to that ideology as being this thing this fixed thing that just started in you know as soon as the world war ii was over uh we started we just had this plan to overthrow you know european governments and do fucking terrorism and call it the left gladio stuff um and then the the war at home was just simply like anti-communism just started and and you know started there and just stayed the same and that's not what happened like the you know one of the great things oliver stone's done is to illuminate the story of henry wallace which who was uh, fdr's vice president and who was who was sort of the um sure certain uh successor to fdr who is way more overtly radical mm-hmm. than maybe any presidential serious presidential candidate in history maybe you know eugene debs i guess notwithstanding but like um watch oliver stone's uh, untold history of the united states or whatever it's called um the henry wallace episode is fucking wild but the the reactionary factions more reactionary factions within the democratic party sabotaged he, like he won and then they somehow on a technicality like rolled that back gathered troops and then got harry truman installed harry truman who is a nightmare of a person uh for you know the reasons explored in this film but also just i mean he's just very regressive democrat you know beyond normal um and so like that i think is something you know it's very opaque the the idea of what the cold war was like and how it played out and why um and you know it was very successful the power structure the capitalists destroyed any hope of like communism ever um taking hold in america because they used world war ii as leverage and because Mm -hmm. fdr's new deal was like by his own admission a way to save capitalism like he was trying to prevent um you know greater revolution again like somebody like huey long uh, in this in Louisiana who you know reshaped a state just by using political maneuvering but was a populist leftist you know as far as that goes like he was somebody who even now RFK Jr. is saying was like some terrifying demagogue and we don't want to go down that path and it's like mm-hmm. you know and I have we've talked about strategic reasons I support RFK Jr. but like th- from the perspective of the democratic line, those the left has always been a threat. And so to see some of that kind of like shake out on screen was, mm-hmm. you know, very telling, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And so I know you're probably going to, we'll talk about it when we get to Fred Jameson as well. But what was interesting to me to extend all of that is not just seeing that communist content on screen and the character of this, of Oppenheimer and, and everybody around him, right? Um, Florence Pugh and so on, but it was the way in which the film both staged 
Here's what happens when a national government, for example, marshals all of its resources into solving a problem mm. in that sort of socialist, as it were, way, which is in this case Manhattan Project. But we've seen other versions of that, whether it's space program or internet. I mean, all this stuff that was publicly funded, right? Um, the film shows that happening um, in a way that we're supposed to celebrate and um, practically showing us how that um, that sort of move at the level of the society at large can solve these problems and you know demonstrating the lie that we don't have to have poverty we don't have to have people with no health care right now we don't have to have uh the prison population we do and unemployment and all that stuff um just it's right there um and then the flip side of that too is how quickly it turned and i don't know if this is a failure on, on nolan's part or sort of towing the studio line or just it's it's worth showing the ways in which then that that government itself too again and this is more the neoliberal angle government is bad right because they could very quickly take this thing and make evil mm. use of it and take it over and become fascists just like the nazis we were trying to fight and so on to your point about the robert Downey jr straws character um but in any case so putting these films side by side you're right asteroid city versus oppenheimer we see oppenheimer's much more serious right of with all this stuff almost to the point that uh, asteroid city despite its language or you know naked bodies or something it's like a kid's movie in a way right um and then i was going to say too off off air it's worth bringing up again and i know him again i'm a broken record here but uh the cormac mccarthy stuff insofar as his last two novels which came out at the end of 2017 again about the time that this oppenheimer film and asteroid city are you know essentially done and ready to go they're not in the theater sorry yet. you said 2017 2022 i'm yeah. sorry 2022 Thank you. Um, yeah, end of 2022. I don't know where 2017 came from, because <laughs> that's where my brain is stuck. Uh, yeah. In any case, um, so these last two novels, which also deal with um, complexity, we don't have to get into that, and sort of mathematics and nuclear uh, physics, right? And so, um, especially the two main characters, Bobby and Alicia Western, right? Uh, capital W, it's it's almost embarrassing. But um, these are the children of a physicist, an atomic physicist who is at Trinity and Los Alamos and, you know, Oak Ridge or whatever, with Oppenheimer and that crew who's done this stuff. And now these kids are kind of living with that legacy of their dad did the thing that can destroy the world. I don't know if they're supposed to be Oppenheimer's kids in some sort of metaphorical way or otherwise. Um, but point being, so we have three texts, Oppenheimer, Asteroid City, and then say The Passenger, that McCarthy film, which or novel, which does deals with this stuff too. And the latter two, Asteroid City and the novel, <clears throat> again, they're, they're neoliberal in ways that are really problematic. Whereas what's so great about uh, Nolan's Oppenheimer is how it's able to sh take the tools of late capitalism, et cetera, and turn it against itself in the ways that the other film and novel just aren't, don't do successfully, you know, resulting in essentially an artistic failure or something, whatever you want to call it. Maybe that's too harsh. Um, but that's what makes Oppenheimer, I think, all the more astounding is kind of my point, that you see other filmmakers or novelists trying to do something similar, but they just, for whatever reason, they're too caught up in the market economy itself, or they're cynical, or they're cucked, or whatever, and they just can't do it. And Nolan, despite his fame and, you know, big budget and studio, he pulled it off, and it's just incredible. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, I... Um... <clears throat> I mean, I was expecting, I knew I was going to like it regardless, but like, I think another, like I w as I was watching, I was just like, cause the first, I don't know, not the first hour, but maybe the first 30 to 40 minutes are 
very overtly just about ideas and ideology. Right. Like, and that's like, I thought to myself, oh, this is why Paul Schrader is saying this because like people don't really make movies like that anymore. I mean, it's not the seventies or even the eighties. Like, um, and that, that is just so hard to fucking pull off. Number one to, I mean, it's not that hard to pull off to make it interesting, but it's hard to pull off in this like shit show landscape where everything is, you know, like there's this great HBO show called Barry, which is sort of a satire um, about Hollywood and this assassin, which, <laughs> and this show started before, like I got into all this like MK ultra serial killer shit. And so I didn't even put those <laughs> like that link together that that's kind of what he's talking about and there's a quote from some like pretty prominent person in like back in the 70s or 80s or like everyone in hollywood's either a producer or a hitman or something um so there's you know it's a dirty game definitely but uh the oh in in barry like his his love interest it's 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 about this assassin who's hiding out. He He's like, he's like a mercenary basically. And uh, he kills people and he'd been to war and everything, but he's trying to like break out of it. And it, he clum the clumsy way he approaches this is he ends up in an acting class. And um, so he's with all these people with all these like, you know, crazy narcissistic personalities and shit. Um, and he, he ends up getting cast in like pretty big shit without trying and everyone else is you know his girlfriend everyone's like super pissed off like how the fuck do you, you know i've been trying to do this for years and he's just like kind of cluelessly bumbling around and, but eventually his girlfriend gets a show made and it's this very personal show about her abuse history and all this stuff and they they film it everything and then she has to have a meeting with the streaming service and they're like yeah the algorithm thinks this isn't gonna work so we're just gonna can it and it's like, and she like loses her mind and like all this stuff. Um, and so I'm, I'm just bringing that up for context because like, that's how it works now is, I mean, I think that's a little extreme. Like they'll put out anything basically, unless it's Batwoman, cause they think it's going to ruin mm -hmm. everyone's career. But, um, <clears throat> like they'll just bury it somewhere. They just won't promote stuff, but they'll put it out. And, but like it, when it comes to these big budget Hollywood movies, I mean, there's so few of them now, like to, again, to get this made is crazy, um, given the content and that this, this does feel like, you know, one of those, like my, my letterbox review for they clone Tyrone was just like, this is a throwback to when they used to make good movies, you know, like that's what Oppenheimer is like. Um, and it has that. Uh, this may be an unpopular opinion in general, but like, even a movie like The Big Chill, which sort of became, I wouldn't say the necessarily the butt of jokes, but it sort of has this. It seems to have this reputation of like being a little bit like heavy-handed, but I'd never watched it because I was, you know, not in my thirties and couldn't relate to like whatever nostalgia that seemed to be the film seemed to be selling, but I watched it a couple of years ago and it blew me away. It was basically about these people who um, they were like X sixties radicals sort of washing up on the shores of like eighties, like America and like not really knowing how to fit 
their past and with their present. Um, and like, I guess what I'm saying is like, that was like, I mean, that, that sort of thing is very formative for me for some reason, just because I, I guess growing up around a bunch of like upper middle class people, um, lawyers and stuff, even though we weren't upper middle class, like having this like really intense, um, emotional, like, like the sort of the media of like walking into those spaces and having that experience like as, at a young age, like really sticks with me. But as I'm saying all this right now, one of the things that I guess I'm articulating is that Oppenheimer is a movie for adults. And mm-hmm. that's not really, I mean, that, that almost sounds like that's almost passe to say now that they don't make movies for adults anymore, but really, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a handful a year. And like you said, Asteroid City even is like a kids movie, which is really ironic because Moonrise Kingdom, which is about kids, is definitely mm-hmm. not a kids movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and is much more interesting in like every possible way. Um, and definitely not in Wes Anderson's top five or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like I think that's sort of the tragedy of this is uh or triumph in its own the fact that he got it made and it it made money um Mm -hmm. and that seems to be what barbie is about too as a phenomenon is like oh you can actually you can actually deal with ideology and it'll make not just its money back but it's gonna make it's going 10x or whatever like that's um that's a good sign i think hopefully means people are kind of sick of being pandered to in this really Mm -hmm. like transparently stupid way um but again even they clone tyrone is like it's like it's premised on a it's a black exploitation we'll we'll do an episode about it it's really good but it's it's premised on like it's like the best parts of a black exploitation movie from the 70s coupled with like really intense like uh political and social critique like hegelian level shit um that i was just not expecting and it stars that guy in Star Wars who fucking sucks in Star Wars, John Boyega or whatever. Yeah. Um, but he's incredible in this one. So anyway, like there there just seemed to be some shift. And I was talking to somebody about like 2019 and just noting how like because that was the last time we got really good movies. We got Parasite, we got Joker, we got Uncut Gems, there were a couple other ones. And they were pointing out that right in that period, right before the plague, we were like ripe for social disruption. And then the plague happened. So again, not probably not coincidental. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's kind of what, what I fear sort of or suspect is going on now is like we're to the point where there's there was sort of an opening. And like these movies could get made that probably couldn't get made, you know, I don't know, two or five years from now or for ago and maybe not, uh, you know, three years from now or something. But we're headed toward a really serious economic reset that, uh, you know, may create a, a, n- a new crisis that prevents, like, you know, revolutionary social formations. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to the the other element of Oppenheimer, which um, was the most beautiful part in some ways, which you gestured toward a moment ago. Um, Fred Jameson wrote an essay slash, I guess, position paper. It's longer than it's like 90 pages. And then there's a book of or responses to it, uh, called 
in American utopia, dual power in the universal army, wherein he, you know, we'll get into some of the weeds around it, but basically he argues that like he's searching for already existing inst American institutions to be a site for revolutionary struggle. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this is based on the notion of dual power. So dual power is the idea that like um, you take basically th this is the reason that the black panthers were such a threat from the perspective of the power structure where you you create organizations that do the job that the state is supposed to do but they do it better and over time that you know this stuff that seems more like service based um but giving people material benefits um there's a tipping point or whatever there's a crossover point where that becomes the site of uh power like you you create leverage that you can use against the state and then the and, and to take this to its revolutionary end you know he he notes that like yes uh there will probably have to be a point of like actual violence to change to for power to switch hands but like if it's strong enough, you know, it almost, he doesn't say this, but my sense would be if it's strong enough, that moment of violence is very brief and not really that significant because so much leverage has shifted. And as he's, um, as he's attempting, well, before I describe what he proposes, I'll just read a quote, um, from this, which, so these are, these are two quotes. Uh, this is then the situation which the old social democratic and liberal parties may still be said to have a function. They can serve as vehicles and platforms for some renewed public legitimation of hitherto repressed and stigmatized transformational policies. So he's saying like you can utilize in the process of this transitional program, I guess, you can utilize existing political parties to push an agenda. Um, like, but they're not going to be the ones who institute like a utopia. But and this is the reason I pulled that quote is just like that seems to be what RFK is actually doing is like using the machinery of like these failed corrupted political parties to like get this message out and normalize mm -hmm. it. And then this next quote, this is, of course, a matter of collective rather than individual rhetoric with its own uh, intricacies and technological and collective novelties. No. Nor is it the place to explore them, but surely the most important achievement of any such exercise in discursive struggle so he's talking about like creating utopias like theoretically is the rehabilitation of nationalization and behind that the replacement of the universally detested target of quote big government to your earlier point with the more stirring realities of collective commitment it is a rehabilitation as well of that even more viscerally repugnant social entity called quote bureaucracy by way of a historical reminder of the glorious roles that social stratum has played in the greater literacy, literacy campaigns and the struggles for unionization and the commitment of teachers to the displacement of superstition ridden clerical schools in the France of the early third Republic or the self-sacrifice of socialist doctors in the first days of the national health services in Britain and in Canada. In short, some welcome renewal of an acknowledgement of the altruistic fervor and sacrifice, such as we witnessed historically in the movements of social workers through the ages. As for the themes to be floated and re-legitimized in this way, surely none is more actual than the nationalization of finance, of banks and insurance companies, and investment institutions of all kinds. Even though more recently what has come to seem 
more immediately urgent, particularly in the era of climate change now upon us, is the wholesale seizure of all energy sources, the appropriation of the oil wells and the coal mines and the destitution of the immense transnational companies that control them. This is not to neglect the other urgent issues confronting people on a daily basis, the need for draconian taxation of the great corporations, if not their outright appropriation, the gradual redistribution of wealth, not excluding the eventual abolition of inheritance as such, the establishment of a guaranteed annual minimum wage, the dissolution of NATO, popular control of the media, and the prohibition of the most noxious right-wing propaganda, universal Wi-Fi, the abolition of tuition, and the reconstruction of free and universal public education, including substantial reinvestment in teacher salaries, free healthcare, full employment, and so on and so forth in no particular order. Okay. So now as I read that, about maybe not half of those, but a third of those are things Trump tried to do. Mm. He tried to nationalize the internet. Mm -hmm. He proposed Medicare for all as just a solution to this like shit show just on its face. He definitely wants a dissolution of NATO. Um, uh, Maybe not the, you know, popular control of the media and the prohibition of the most noxious right-wing propaganda. I mean, probably not that. But, uh, like, <laughs> they're definitely, there's enough of, they're, like, and this is, again, why Trump was, like, ideologically dangerous. The power structure mm -hmm. is because he was doing the thing that Jameson's saying. Like, you can use political parties to basically reestablish ideas that were heretofore or for a long time in recent memory seen as like crazy or stupid or bad like mm -hmm. bureaucracy nationalization whatever basically all the shit that big the big government stuff the stuff that Foucault argued against in favor of neoliberalism right individuality um reestablishing those things as ideas like if Trump had oh the, the other the other big one I missed Trump wants to reform he wants tuition reform he wants colleges to be capped to have tuition caps and pull the numbers down so people can actually afford to go there as well as fund like trade schools and stuff like how is that not a left-wing position i mean mm -hmm. i don't even mean five years ago i mean now um and so like there's a reason they're trying to fucking lock him up like he can't he can't be allowed to do this mm -hmm. um and so like that's you know that's obviously the paradoxical horror of our moment is like the only people really on the side of the communists are these like reactionary right-wing figures um because they're the only ones who have the f freedom to say it mm -hmm. uh and so you know rfk notwithstanding but jesus christ his comments on israel some of the most terrifying things i've ever heard this is a big goddamn problem i mean Max Blumenthal does this whole takedown of every point that he, he says, but I mean, he's just repeating like psychotic Zionist lies, like true, like shit show, but that's for another day. Um, the point being like the, the notion of, and I'm not saying Trump has communist aims. I'm just saying he seems to have a formal level, be the only communist we got. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> as we've said many times, but um I think I will say just like as an overall note on this Jameson piece is like the, the mark of a truly great thinker to me is where they change like the whole coordinates of like what's possible to think about. And one of the really, I don't have this quote cause I 
I was I, I switched from reading to an audio thing um, later, but he talks about like basically doing away with the propaganda that efficiency is like this value that's meaningful in an economy, which mm-hmm. saying that out loud violates every fucking ideological norm that we have on, on all sides. Like everyone thinks in these terms, we've all adopted to what I know this like retroactively. Cause it was like, Holy shit, he's right. Like, why do we need efficiency that, that, mm-hmm. that does not have to define human life or the economy. Right. There's no, there's no a priori that requires that. It's simply though the tech bro, you know, doctrine that we're all living under now um and so anyway jameson walks there's another like nice section where he walks through all the existing institutions that maybe would be a candidate for something that we could use to create dual power and then he sort of does away with them but they're they're interesting like how the first candidate was the post office and how Lenin even said everything should basically be organized after the revolution, like the post office, which mm-hmm. if that had, if that had come to pass, it would have, you know, we wouldn't have got like the authoritarian communism that, you know, Stalinism wouldn't have been able to exist if that's how things had gone. But that's a, again, a much broader conversation for another time. Um, he talks about the professions, you know, like doctors in certain moments having crisis moments, like having po- the ability to wield power and like obviously altruistic aims. The legal profession sort of already kind of occupies this space, but it's too like locked into what it's doing to to expand to the rest of society. Although I will say French Revolution was a bunch of lawyers. So like, let's not, you know throw the baby out with the bathwater completely um but his points well taken anyway he he just runs down all the existing institutions finds them to be failing except for the army mm-hmm. and so he gives this you know he quotes i think it's either like a short story or something but like president so and so in 2076 uh conscripted 223 million americans into the national guard and then 24 hours later kicked them out so that they mm-hmm. all get to there they all have health insurance forever now so it, that's yeah, how you nationalize health care yeah through the va um and how the va even in its current state is this sort of like parallel government that like has its own you know it it is this massive institution as such mm-hmm. and it, so he's saying draft everyone because number one our ability to fight wars will be gone uh because everyone won't will, won't be in shape and like we'll have you know all these problems that need to be like dealt with like personal problems and health problems and so on and so like we will will cease to be an imperial you know the imperial uh capacity will go away um and like he goes into great detail about like how to solve actual problems of like of utopias oh another really important thing about when he's talking about utopian thinking is like we need to eventually do away with political thinking because political thinking politics asks questions like what do we want to do it's problem based and like in terms of like or solution based in the sense of like we identify a problem and then we try to work within the available po- coordinates of the possible to quote solve it and so that's always like inherently restrictive which is why if you try to talk about politics in a broader sense with 
anybody who's actually involved with party politics. They're like the most boring idiots you've ever encountered. They they literally can't think outside of it. And on the rare occasions they can, they just defer back to, well, this is the way it is. There are some exceptions on the right now, actually. It's like there was a time when the left was like, again, the 70s, when the left actually kind of took, tried to take that seriously, like tried to get, um, oh God, who was it? One of the Black Panthers, like either mayor, he was, they're trying to get him elected as mayor of San Francisco or on the council or something. Uh, obviously, Harvey Milk was a radical, you know, as far mm -hmm. as that goes. And other, you know, people like Shirley Chisholm trying to do stuff. Um, but the left sort of abandoned that. I mean, I, and I do not count DSA within this like framework. I mean, DSA is just a fucking a joke. And it has, to me, it has been since the beginning. It was good at getting pe young people to call themselves socialists, but that's about it. Um, they're pathetic and have basically nothing to do with the left, uh, as far as I'm concerned. <clears throat> um, again, conversation for another day, but like the, so, but by jettisoning, jettisoning political thinking, this opens the door for utopian thinking. And utopian thinking tries to imagine, like, what we actually want and then reverse engineer, like, how would you have to, what would you have to destroy, change, transform, whatever to get there? And so starting from that premise is much more potent. And he does a good job of, like, um, countering a lot of the critiques made of utopian socialism in the past, both by showing the failings of those critiques as well as, excuse me, um, um, attacking the utopias themselves. Like he talks about how stale left-wing utopias are, like how stale human life is for the utopias that the left envisions, which is a hundred percent true. I mean, if you talk to a tanky about what they want to happen, like no one's signing up for it because it sucks and it's fucking. <laughs> um, and I'll just give you an example of like a tanky that I knew who I, he was seemed pretty cool for a while, but I posted a, an article about how there was like some mass execution in a stadium in North Korea where they, executed like 10,000 militants in public you know just barbarism and he's like well that's oh well you're you're like basically like yeah from a perspective of the western individual notions of justice and it's like wait a minute <laughs> so you think this is cool like you know just terrifying stuff like that so like tankies are pretty delulu in their own right which is why people make fun of them um but like and so jameson like what he posits is like basically like the the only remaining bureaucracy ends up being this psychoanalytic bureaucracy where it's it's just like deeply complex it's sort of regulating social relations but using computers and um creating this entity that more or less it it uh it's it's sort of like tr um the bridge between the base and the superstructure uh and but like eventually it will just sort of dissipate like it, it will actually wither away because it's like it, it'll just become unnecessary um like actually unnecessary but he talks about like even changing you know there's always this problem in communism of like what do you do with money how do you get rid of it and he's just talking about like brutally enforcing number one actual you know guaranteed income and mm -hmm. 
Um, he was even talking about like all the different jobs people could have. So you want full employment. But what that can mean is like, he's like, people should be totally free to do whatever they want, whether they want to, you know, like have churches or be reactionaries or struggle with drug addiction their whole life or what, like that can be your job too. Like anything like really breaking open the, again, the kind of inverting the postmodern neoliberal notion of the entrepreneur of the self, where mm -hmm. rather than like forming yourself into this thing, it just, everything breaks wide open. He's like, we shouldn't, the idea that like, he said even Robert Reich was like, people need to accustom themselves to the idea that they're not going to do the same job for the rest of their lives anymore in the emerging economy. And Robert Reich is like a fucking Clintonite, you know, mm -hmm. reactionary guy. But Jameson was sort of taking that and running with it in the sense of like, he's like, and we could even do like, we should have people, you know, how so how do you deal with wealth disparities or whatever? What you do is you just have you do like five-year increments. So for five years, some people go live these very luxurious lives. And then five years later, they go and try to rebuild the slums and uh, live it while living there until hopefully the slums are just no longer exist eventually because they've been, you know, rehabbed or whatever. And so like really taking all this, all of our assumptions about what's sort of necessary and taken for granted and just doing away with them. And the, you know, the army, like this universal army um, has, you know, he doesn't go into a lot of detail about like the actual, like, you know, bureaucratic mechanisms. He just gives some broad strokes and suggests we could, should continue thinking through this. But um, I, it was just very refreshing because the left is, has given up on all this stuff. Like it's, it's very interesting that this was written in 2016 and that was sort of the last gasp of like you know any sort of sanity uh, anywhere in the society um and not because of trump because of the reaction to trump at first and then COVID, etc so like how does this relate to oppenheimer well th this was the my other big takeaway was like oppenheimer showed a time in American history where communism was actually instituted. So the, mm -hmm. the paradoxical, like the, the FBI, the power structure saw communist actual communists as a huge threat. Meanwhile, they're doing communism directly. They're, you know, requisitioning scientists and having them live in a fake town with their families, trying to make them drafting them literally and then trying to make them wear the uniforms but immediately they're like fuck them we're just going to wear whatever we want this is kind of the idea that jameson has put forth mm -hmm. um so like the way we think about the military is obviously like this huge cult that uses poor people as cannon fodder to like fight imperial warfare and uh, sustain american power capitalist dominance throughout the globe um, Jameson wants to like, you know, basically dissolve all of that and re restructure the society in the direction of like, what's good for human life, um, without being, without naively, um, deferring to notions of human nature and like paradise or something like that. Like he, he spends a lot of time talking about the logic of envy and like he, 
uses Lacanian, you know, framings of jouissance to say basically the way we should relate to envy is we should celebrate it and we should because for Lacan, like you can't the desire of the other, which is uh manifest in jouissance enjoyment, the enjoyment of the other is a thing that's always structuring our consciousness. Like you just can't get away from it. And therefore, like we should stop trying to and we should just celebrate it as like we should just posit it kind of as like a structuring principle and the the way he talks about dealing with the law is interesting because he says he references Zizek's reference of Chesterton about how like um you know the law is much more thrilling than any crime uh, orthodoxy is much more thrilling than like transgression and he's like so we should we should structure the law like a conspiracy with all the all the tropes of like, you know, everyone has to be at the right place at the right time um, to pull this thing off. So like a caper and basically like have like invert the law, the, the way we understand the law to be this extant force imposing itself on us to sustain social cohesion or a threat of force, but rather this thing that we're all we're all collaborating on to try to create all the time and, you know. I, I assume there's there's a high level of dynamism in terms of how social relations operate under this since the rules that weren't used to are gone. Because now, rather than the law, we have this bureaucratic institution guaranteeing people are eating and are housed and are being where they're supposed to be and are doing their job, even if their job shooting heroin or whatever. Um, and so, like, this is a very glorious text um, mm. at every level. and like the you know that that's the really radical thing about oppenheimers not only were they every was everyone communist but they were it was where the this utopia and jameson points this out you know world war ii was this grand utopian experiment mm -hmm. in the u.s specifically um so that was like that was a utopia and i you know as i thought through that more like he didn't even mention this but Another thing, a really radical thing that happened during the war was like women were basically all went, they became the factory workers for a time. And like, I think the fifties and all that like high domestic nuclear family shit was a reaction to the break in reality that happened in world war two, where it's like, Oh, women can do all this shit too. Like, you know, while men are off like fighting and dying or whatever, like we don't, these rules aren't fucking real. I mean that, so the, what I would say is, um, the, what, what Oppenheimer stages is kind of like this, this arc of like communism being a real threat, then becoming a real thing. And mm -hmm. then the, the threat of that reality being the thing that got reacted against internally mm. by uh, you know opposition counter-revolutionary capitalist right. forces that's the real story um but what that means is the 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 first and second stages are not only possible but they wouldn't have needed to be destroyed if they weren't a threat to the standing order meaning if if this utopia was just unsustainable they could have just like let it fall away but that was unacceptable they had to destroy it they had to create literally new social reproduction with the uh you know rarefied um nuclear family which is like you know a pretty terrifying thing on its yeah. face definitely so yeah there's a lot of like there's a lot of like nuance going on here even though like 
I won't. I'm not quoting her directly. It was kind of funny. Like <laughs> friend of the pod, Joe is just like it's hard to like care about a movie that's like so on message like all the time. But and Scott had made a similar comment. Like why are they? I just every dialogue exchange was just finished properly and and i was like well i actually think and so this is my jamesonian argument is like i actually think that's what it was actually like back then mm -hmm. but that's because they had a cause that they were fighting for like it wasn't just it you know like and this is the this is the part that's totally lost on current you know generations myself included but i only know it because i've tried to find out you know alternatives or you know things that have happened in the past but like you know she spoke in defense of lost causes when you have a you know um uh transcendental cause like communism or whatever defeating the nazis or building the bomb like everything else goes away and that's you're actually freer then like mm -hmm. you're free in a way we can't imagine under neoliberalism where we're bombarded with false choices all the time and all this pressure to make the right choices and be the right person and do the right things and build the right wealth and all this bullshit. but when you have a cause all that goes away like one of the most succinct versions of this was like, there's a documentary about the um, Abraham Lincoln brigades. So these are Americans who volunteered to go fight in the Spanish civil war on the side of the communists and anarchists. And there's this black dude who was talking about it. It's an excellent documentary. Um, but he, I don't know. It must've been made in the eighties or something. Cause these people were still alive, but uh, he said something about like, it was always cold and it was shitty and I was hungry, but I didn't care. It didn't bother me because, you know, we were fighting for a cause. Like, that's something that neoliberal, if neoliberalism has tried to kill anything, it's that. And as Badu says, as I repeat endlessly, the, the target of enemy propaganda is the possibility of hope. Mm -hmm. So if you can get rid of the idea of a transcendental cause as even a possible thing because of too much cynicism or too much um, self-interested fake individualism, and honestly false egotism uh because it's socially mediated in such an extreme way like mm -hmm. there's like i don't think people on social media like influencers aren't egotists because their job and their life fucking sucks because they have to perform constantly that's not egotism that is like that's mind control it's slavery yeah. it's slavery it's prison like all that um and greenspan made that clear that he wanted precarious workers because that would that would prevent the left from forming. So this is the economy that we have thanks to Bill Clinton and, and company. Um, so all this is to say, like these threats don't go away, you know, like causes are still possible. It's not, it's not a thing that just dies because we're not, we haven't done it for a while. Um, and again, over and over again, why do you need such a strong propaganda system? Because it's too dangerous to let mm -hmm. people think freely um so yeah yeah the i mean to the to the jameson point about to the army as being the potential site for this utopia i i mean i grasped onto that right away and so thank you for directing my attention to that because i'd been thinking about that for a long time you know part of me you know jokes about nixon being the last communist uh president notwithstanding i'd thought of, thought about what what i missed by not joining some sort of the, you know, branch of the armed forces as a younger person but it was very different back then you know 20 years ago or whatever but um 30 years ago i suppose <laughs> uh geez i'm old but also um 
I guess just thinking, I mean, think about what I missed, but also re retroactively seeing that Nixonian abolition of conscription as kind of a neoliberal move, right? Because right. it then f doesn't force those of us from different social classes and backgrounds to talk to each other and to work with each other and so on. And then to have the collectively an investment in the VA and that other system once we're out of the military. And that's, I think Jameson is spot on here. Um, and I thought about this in other ways too, because back when I used to teach a, a course on healthcare policy and I guess economics, as it were, uh, at a university here, we would talk about how, hey, where did this universal healthcare thing come from? And we should think about that in the US. We do the history and students are like, oh, Kaiser Wilhelm, right? In Germany, this autocrat, reactionary, right winger, you know, dictator um, who would send people to war. They'd get, they'd get, maimed and beat up and he's like i should probably come up with some sort of system that these guys and their families are taken care of so thus universal health care right from the right to your point about trump is it coming from that source rather than the left because the left doesn't seem capable of doing it the right does which is the irony um and i've been thinking about all these things for for quite a long time again just wondering what did i miss by not being in the army how come the the best uh you know healthcare plans come from the far right uh, etc and just thinking like there's no jameson's right there's no reason other than again disciplinary uh neoliberal state why we couldn't do this sort of thing and provide all this stuff for everybody mm -hmm. and and you're right that's exactly what the film oppenheimer shows that again these other examples we pointed to don't uh and that's it's just so inspiring in that in that way um and I haven't finished the Jameson essay, but I will. So. Yeah. The, um, but to your point about like wishing you join the army, that's interesting. I've had similar thoughts. Um, <clears throat> it's so I took this career quiz one time that was like, it was, uh, I don't even, it was kind of, it was interesting. It was just asking like a set of, it was like kind of a B testing stuff. Like what would you rather do? Like, would you rather fix a, uh, outlet in your house or would you rather do this thing and so mm -hmm. answer the questions <laughs> the it gives you three results the results i got were electrical engineer one electrical and it was just matching with people who are mm -hmm. actually in those careers electrical engineer one a marine electrical engineer two and it was like <laughs> and that was always that is what i thought you know if i was going to join i'd go into the marines mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. now it's also interesting this Jameson thing because I'd read, you know, I was familiar with his idea. He gave a lecture about this in like 2015 that I'd seen initially before the book uh, came out. And I had, I was like, yeah, this rules, let's do it. But uh, I kind of like bracketed it away. And then when shit started going sideways, you know, like climate change got really viscerally uh, clear what was happening like 2018, 2019. Then I was like, okay, my plan, pl my plan Z is except uh an air force commission and just ride mm -hmm. out at least i'll get to eat longer than most people um and but like what i'm you know again i didn't link that with jameson exactly i mean his essay may have like lowered a barrier for me but um i was like but it was just it's just interesting that that's what was like oh that's how you that's where you get safe like you give up stuff in this case, it, the way it's structured now, you give up too much, but like, mm. um, you give up stuff and you get security. And mm. like, as a, when I was younger, when I'd fantasize about joining the military, it was more, it had to do with like very specific 
stuff to my abuse history and my sense of responsibility. And so it appealed to me as a fantasy because it's like, finally, I won't have to make decisions like all the time. Like, um, and so just at a, like a kind of, you know, uh, individual subject, subjective perspective there's a lot of things that appeal to me about it but mm. i you know i never could have joined the army or what <laughs> i wasn't gonna go fucking kill iraqis like right. that's just not wasn't gonna happen um but like yeah if you restructure it if you do this stuff then um then it becomes a horse of different color as it were and i think you know i i just want to make a note about utopian thinking in general like it may seem um, crazy what we're talking about in some ways, you know, I just start again from a political perspective of like, well, well, how do you get there? What I would argue though, is there's nothing fucking wilder than reality itself right now. And <laughs> right. If, for many years, like we've seen such like radical upheavals that were, would have seemed impossible months before weeks before days before, uh, you know, that whole, like Lenin thing about sometimes decades happen in a weeks or whatever. Like that's, this is this whole period that we're living through is that. Um, and so I think, I think like pragmatism is fucking, I've always hated it for a lot of reasons, but like at this point, it's literally schizophrenia to try to think pragmatically or think about the future in some linear way. So why not do this? I mean, Zizek started arguing for a ver in a in a lecture that was like it wasn't a very public lecture. I think it was inside a seminar or something. Somebody asked him about Jameson's idea, and he's like, "Oh, it's it's you know lunacy, but like you know it's interesting, whatever." But he, you know, then a couple years later, he started arguing for this. He started saying on the grounds of like climate change we should be pushing governments to use emergency powers and basically militarize the use the military to like restructure the economy to fight climate change. So um, even there, he's kind of like, you know, changed his tune to some degree. I mean, it's more nuanced mm -hmm. than that, but sort of. Um, and so like, I think, I think it's, it's actually vitally important now, especially to be doing like doing theory like this. Like again, the whole, like when Zizek's asked about theory versus practice or whatever, he's always like, "It aren't the most radical upheavals always at the theoretical level? Those are the things that actually change everything. Um, yeah. You know, whether that's mathematics or Oppenheimer's, you know, physics, mm -hmm. like this is the perfect, most condensed example maybe in human history of this is like, if you get the ideas right, then everything else changes. Mm -hmm. Um and I mean, you know, he, he has that line at the end with Einstein where he's like, you know how you thought this, the thing we were building might end the world, like be the, bring about the end of the world. And then he's like, yeah. The chain reaction. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, I think it did. Right. Um, And so like, that's another thing that's really hard to stage on film is like this kind of. Um, Heideggerian ontic, ontological thing where it's like this new disclosure of being, this new world, mm -hmm. this uh, Baduian, like, you know, um, uh, I can't remember how you, I, I can't remember the terminology, but basically <laughs> like a new, new his, uh, horizon of being is disclosed only in certain historical epochs. So Badu's claim would be like 
we can only think through certain philosophical ideas in certain eras of world history because of like what is you know what emerges and Zizek's like simplified version of this is like you the reason that philosophy kind of got invented in Greece is because that was the first time you had money in this very abstract form which allowed a different type of abstraction in general um that was sort of heretofore not possible for you know basically contingent historical reasons and so like you have silly Killian Murphy Cillian Murphy saying to an audience oh you know when we made that scientific discovery and we thought it might end the world i think it did end the world like mm -hmm. and people can understand that so you're basically mm -hmm. teaching people heidegger <laughs> in the movies like which is not a normal american experience and then you have i think what's like also like really refreshing about reading this jameson thing now is and i i would i couldn't really read theory during the plague like it was just i couldn't do it and I'll, i think a lot of people had that experience um but like you know, returning to it because I'd always intended to read this. I just never did it. And, but like at the same time, seeing like how impotent the left is, like literally there's this, this is just so shocking. There's this girl I know in South Dakota who's involved with this. They're literally trying to do Marxist. They're doing entryism into DSA, this Marxist uh, unity group. And they want to turn DSA into a Marxist group. And I, I just, for a, a younger woman to like think that this is worth fucking doing like i literally I was like telling my friend i'm like she's it's like you're too hot to be doing this like this is meaning you're too good for this like uh, like this is not the fucking way forward uh for the left like we have to figure out something else we have to break out of this these tired, dead 20th century politics that aren't going anywhere, especially in an org that's like, mm -hmm. by definition, reactionary. Um, it always has been. So like, that's just like an example, but it's like so depressing. And to, to just watch this play out, like the, the left, you know, and this is again, why I think it's like the seventies are returning is like, you know, we, we didn't have the upheaval that, like the occupied generation didn't have the upheaval that the sixties did, but we did have some shit happening. We had an anti-war movement that was, you know, relatively serious to some degree, even though it was smaller than the, you know, anti-war movement in the sixties. But like, you just have all these, we had all this like political momentum and a sense of possibility and some danger and some, you know, some real shit happening. I mean, you know, Occupy happens and then you have the Arab Spring and then you have mm -hmm. Wisconsin. All that stuff was happening. Um, these were major moments of like a sense of possibility. In, like I've said on the show before, being in New York, October 15, uh, 2011, it was terrifying. And the reason was the same reason the French Revolution was terrifying for the revolutionaries is because an abyss was opening and you could mm -hmm. see like, because you never know, like the like the French, like the Jacobin said, like you don't know where this is going to go. This can end in horrific fashion or not, um, but you, that's the sort of risk that needs to be taken. And that was what I saw happening on the streets and like in the conference with communists talking about these things seriously, what to do if we take power, et cetera, and not having that be a fucking LARP or a fantasy.
and like you know then what happens when that aperture fucking closes um you have this kind of like i guess reactionary but also just this dusty fucking like dustbin of history that people are kind of still living in because they don't know what to do and they're not they won't admit that they don't know um and that's where like that's why we need theory you know theory doesn't have to be practical it has like Zizek says it has its own value but like you what i think is like you read something like this and then it like i said the radicality of it is it breaks open the idea that you have to assume all these things to be true and like mm -hmm. in kind of a in a slightly occult occult way uh like it's not really even a cult but like this is what a occultists talk about you know like um matter being ideas being material and blah 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 but like i i'm not even saying you need to do that all i'm saying is just like by way of analogy if you stop if i stop thinking that things are necessary and i start talking about them differently that does affect other people and how they think i know that that's true i've seen that happen um and so that's why we have to like persist at this task that just seems like oh we're just fantasizing or we're just bullshitting it's like no this reality has crumbled multiple times i mean we're already this summer we are 1.5 c above pre-industrial times globally on average so like we're already in it we're in the fucking collapse um and I think it was it was either in this Jameson piece or something else I was reading where they were talking about how like it was really good. It was like we have to stop treat the reason that we can't find a solution to climate change is because we keep thinking it's in the future, but it's happening. We're mm -hmm. in it. And this was sort of the argument I was making maybe three years ago about how like we have to treat climate change as technology and as a thing that we're doing. It's the mm -hmm. biggest tech project of all time. Right. And so we can pretend like it's not happening and then it just does whatever it wants chaotically, mm -hmm. or we really take control of it. And so like, mm -hmm. I would just couple Jameson's, you know, and he, he mentions climate change, but it's not as important because it wasn't, right. we didn't, they weren't admitting it was how bad off we were in 2016 as we are now, but now it's like, oh no, everybody's on the same page. They can literally feel it. Um, yeah. it's literally killing them. So just this, this is the, so like, okay, here's the plan. This is why we do it. Right. This is what it's for. Um, and you're not going to, that is why you need somebody like Bobby Kennedy. Um, he's, he would be a necessary evil to that degree or in that sense, because he's talking about. Um, he kind of sounds like a trot actually, like, cause when he talks about how he would fix things, he's like, I know how these institutions work. I've been suing them for decades. You, you cleave the CIA in two, you separate the espionage from the, whatever the other part is. Um, you do like, here's how you fix the NIH. Here's how you fix all these, like, he's trying to attack the bureaucracies as such. And that that's the only, I mean, in that sense, he's 1000% right. That is the only way you, ch it's possible to change anything like all that deep state stuff. I think everyone agrees and knows that that's true. Even if they don't agree on who, who it is and why they're doing right. it. Um, those are the sorts of things that like, this is things like at this scale are the only way forward. And this is why they keep killing Kennedys who get close to power because that's yeah. 
I mean, John Kennedy wanted to do this. He just called it the Peace Corps. Right. He said we need to wind wind down American, uh, you know, military adventurism and just be an army for peace. Like the, Jameson's basically just being like the best boomer possible, literally. Yeah. Say being John Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy together, and then. And and Kennedy, I was going to say, makes a, a notable appearance at the very end of Oppenheimer. I mean, by in name only, right? Um, as the guy who blocks one of the guys who blocks Straw's nomination to cabinet mm. or whatever. But the to that point that you said, climate change. I mean, you're, that's also what I was thinking watching Oppenheimer and why that was so important. Because again, it shows what a committed collective uh, effort can accomplish. And we need that right now. And that's what the public and policymakers and people need to see mm. is here's what we did in the 50s. It was utopian. We built, built this this technological marvel. We, I mean, evidence that proof that it happens. So we need that literally right now. We needed it yesterday for climate change. And I don't know if that's going to have any effect at the cultural level, but politics notwithstanding, just showing people how reality can change when the community itself and everybody works together in that utopian way, we could fix it, right? Right. Um, and so I'd only, I mean, I got to go soon, but I'd only add two things um, real quick. One about the, I guess the army in particular, but one is uh, I, I have no, no love, no love for Harry Truman, mm -hmm. but I do think he had, he had made the proposal of a national health system right uh, right so for what it's worth but um he's a dick it's fine yeah. but um in terms of the jameson stuff too and then the army as a sort of potential utopian space for everybody and all we all get housing food health care etc um as exciting that as as that is to me i think neither of us are under any illusion about the how how that could unfold problematically and i'm thinking since we're speaking about you know Oppenheimer and these folks who are, have a Jewish background. I'm thinking of places that do have conscription, and it's, I'm thinking I'm going to go right to Israel, for example, and the ways in which that's that hasn't made them this utopian space, right? In a host right. of ways, it's just because they have universal conscription and universal healthcare or something. So we're not under any illusions that that could no. not work out, right? But it's it's certainly an inspiring thing, and it's um, I mean the, again the Jameson piece really makes a compelling argument. So. Well, Israel is very interesting in this context because they're literally like the opposite of what mm. we're describing. Mm. And But I would argue maybe that's also part of this reaction. And what I mean by that is like, like I was reading about the Israeli kibbutz system and, mm. you sure. know, sent it to my friend who had been to Kurdistan, who's like totally, you know, has lived in a society before, unlike myself. Well, I lived, I was alive while there was still part of a society in like the early eighties, but then it's gone. Right. Um, but like the kibbutz system is, was wild. I mean, mm -hmm. it, as far as how radical a lot of it is and like, you know, all our, you know, the, the millennial comedy people like Seth Rogen, his parents were socialist Israelis who lived on a kibbutz, sure. you know, like yep. there's there's echoes of these things even in like like who we are now or whatever and so um like i mean as a culture i don't i mean in general in america not just not specific to israelis or jews or whatever but like like creating this hyper psychotic reactionary state like Israel, which is like, you know, almost unreal and in, in how terrifying the repression is in how like detailed it is and bureaucratic. 
Um, I was going to say that. Well, yeah, it's just the, the kibitzes were, I mean, you read about what they were like initially mm-hmm. and they were a lot, they were similar in, in, in spirit, at least to what Jameson's describing. Although they, they were relied on too much social uniformity to like sustain the cohesion, which is not what, what he's talking about at all. Um, but yeah, well, I'm not under any illusions that it can't go sideways, but mm-hmm. I will say that, and I'll be interested in what you think as you finish the essay, because he does go into pretty significant detail about how to attempt to prevent a lot of those problems oh, in okay. practice. Um, but as far as, you know, and then the, yeah, the Harry Truman universal healthcare thing, I was thinking about that as I was talking shit about him, but it is true, you know, give the devil his due. Um but I'll say too, like if this seems too crazy to make happen, um, I would just add that like the British healthcare system was NHS was developed by Welsh union members who just created healthcare collectives and then pushed it all through the UK until everyone demanded it. So these are things anything can happen. You know, mm-hmm. everything's always wide open. And to that end, like it's it may be instructive to get a sense of like, well, can we point to any examples of dual power? Um, like we Jameson immediately points to the Black Panther Party, who was trying to do who did free um breakfast, free lunch programs for kids, move it who was trying to move into uh free clinics, um, and then everybody got locked up and killed or exiled or whatever, uh co-opted. <clears throat> Angela Davis. Um, and so, but the, a more, uh, as we were, as we were preparing for this, we found out that Taylor Swift in her eras tour, um, which God knows how much money she made, you know, but she gave $55 million in bonuses to her crew. And yeah. there was another article, a follow-up article that was pointing out how, <clears throat> The hundred thousand dollar bonuses she gave to her truck drivers would will allow them to buy houses that they would have never been able to buy otherwise. Mm. And so this is an example of fucking dual power where you have these. I mean, since we're entering this new sort of like medieval dark ages, like it's it's unsurprising that these sort of like aristocratic, you know, monarchist type figures like Taylor Swift, um, become like an example of like the beauty of this to me from a communist perspective is everyone who goes to the show and pays for the tickets gets what they want. Like my friend went to a show and she came back and I, she was glowing. I've never Mm -hmm. seen her that happy in my life. And uh, like, it was like, clearly was this very transcendent experience, which as Zizek has argued, you know, in our secular world, that's often it's parties and stuff like that, where like literally party celebrations where people touch the transcendent. Um, so you have all these people who are like mega fans and Hey, I would have gone if I had the fucking change to, to spit out at it. Um, but like everybody gets what they want. And then she's literally redistributing wealth within her own cadre. And it's showing people like, I'm telling Taylor Swift fans. I'm like, Hey, you just bought somebody a fucking house. Like that's, deeply important like Mm -hmm. it's hard to 
you know, there's all these mutual aid things that I see on Facebook all the time. And that's cool. I'm glad people can get their rent paid for, but it's just, I mean, it's very much triage and it's, it's not at yeah. scale, but you have something like this or like relatedly in Beyonce's tour, she paid a hundred thousand dollars. So the trains would run an hour longer. So her fans could get home after the show. So like we have this actual shift in power, uh, like, or at least the, you know, the buds of it, like the beginnings of it, the seedlings of it, um, like Jameson's Seeds of Time book um, <clears throat> about utopias, like these things are possible and they're happening. I'm not saying Taylor Swift's going to like save the world. I'm saying this proves you can do these things and it's not hard and everybody still gets what they want. So like, and <laughs> just incidentally, uh, last night, Taylor Swift announced uh, at the end of the Eras tour her 1989 reboot, Taylor's version. She re-records her records because the original record company like fucked her over or whatever. And uh, I was I was taking a walk late at night after I had had a pretty intense conversation with a fellow Taylor Swift acolyte um, who I was helping work through some emotional stuff. And I, no joke, I'm walking in a part of town that there's nobody would be out at two o'clock in the morning and th this coven of witches walks down the street the middle of the street singing taylor swift songs <laughs> <laughs> and like you see you know and then they i i was kind of ahead of them and then one of at the end uh one of them was like hi but i was i'm i'm a you know, man, I'm an honest man. I'm, I have a law in my heart. Like I know a siren when I hear one. So I just kept going, but like the, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about like, there's a moment in the era's tour show where they, these witches come out in cloaks and do a little thing. Like it's, it has weird things, which I'm not like saying it's all sinister and dark, but it's just funny. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, but I did feel like uh, a medieval, traveler at that moment where you're just like encountering these like little clans of like uh witches or coven or whatever so anyway like i do think and and i think this barbie movie as a as a phenomenon is like very significant because you know like i said at the beginning like you have women getting out of toxic relationships because this movie is like showing them they have alternatives um these are not insignificant things uh mm -hmm. you know and especially like if we're moving in the, and I always have been, but like if we're willing to move in the direction of utopian thinking, I think we have to, you know, start with like little, whatever hints we see, you know, letters from the future uh, that are in the present now, uh, because there's no, <laughs> the idea, even the notion of the possible has been radically shattered in a negative way. So it's like, well, if, if nothing is possible that we were promised, then why, why shouldn't things that we were told are impossible be all the more possible for that very reason? Uh, so we may be at some sort of breaking point and it can go either way. But Jameson also points out how this is a last note, like even the fantasy of either like a, per a paradise on the one hand, or just the dystopic, like famine, uh, hellscape on the other. Those are just, those are just a reified version of the class divide that already exists. Like mm -hmm. the rich already have that paradise and all the power and control. Like there was that 
great SNL bit where Bill Gates was like, oh, I guess I'll go back to controlling the weather. Like, you know, these like uber rich people who are, a, you know, literally, as some have described them, a different species because just because they're so rich, not even that they're reptiles, which is another question. Um, but the but then on the other, you where is the famine and destruction? That's everyone else's life. That's the 99%, 99.999% of people or whatever who just can barely survive. And so, like, the sense of possibility that we need to rekindle is mostly just a, a realist approximate, you know, a realist assessment of the fact that, like, none of this is going anywhere that's sustainable. It's all going to shit, and it's it's dissolving in front of our eyes, so why not just say fuck it and, it, you know, assert something that's radically different because it at least has the possibility of working for everyone rather than against us all.